0: the last page in that handout that uh, begins with verse 17. So if you don't have that handout from last week, there are some extra copies at the back as well as the uh, handout number 10 for this evening. Let's begin in prayer, shall we? Our Father, we who are strangers and pilgrims upon the earth, sojourners of the end of the age, come to you at this part of your word, the inspired third and fourth chapters of Hebrews, taking our place alongside of the pilgrims and sojourners of the former age. And like them, we find ourselves uh, between the times, between the time of release and redemption and the time of perfect rest and consummation. On this pilgrim journey, we plead the need for the grace of faith and for the sufficiency of that grace in allowing us to grasp the eternal and invisible realities of the heavenly places. Fixing our eyes steadfastly upon Jesus, who is that pioneer pilgrim of our own age, we would be content to travel with him, trusting him alone, and looking forward to being welcomed by him at at the end of our travels. We thank you, O Lord, for this epistle, for how it uh, recreates the drama of the history of redemption for our benefit, even as that drama benefited the pilgrims of old encourage us then in our own pilgrim journey through the faith <clears throat> that is once for all delivered to the saints old and new testament alike we pray in Jesus name amen now in chapter 217 we have the initial appearance in that 17th verse of the high priest motif a much fuller expansion uh, will be given at the end of chapter 4 and will, in principle, uh, continue to dominate the theology of this letter through uh, chapter 10, verse 25. We had asked, uh, when we were looking at the uh, incarnation of Christ uh, in relationship uh, to Uh, Where did I put that note? In relationship to... uh, I've lost my own place here. (laughs) Verse 14 to 15. that the purpose of the incarnation that we noted there was to reverse death by being the death of death now we want to ask that question again with respect to verse 17 <clears throat> the motif has changed because of the high priestly announcement or the con- containing the high priestly role <clears throat> in this verse So, what is the purpose of the Incarnation according to verse 17? It is the mediation, priestly mediation or intercession, which Jesus brings uh, once and for all to the history of redemption. Notice when we say that the purpose of the Incarnation, verses 14 and 15, is to render death powerless. We haven't exhausted the significance of the incarnation or its purpose. Uh, here we see another purpose of Christ coming in the flesh, uh, namely to serve as a high priestly mediator and intercessor. <clears throat> now, this verse raises the question <clears throat> of uh, how Christ was faithful. It calls him a faithful high priest. <clears throat> and uh, so we think about that for a while. Uh, how is Christ faithful in exercising the office of a high priest? And the answer is actually in verse 18. And so what would you say in response to that question? You want to take a stab at it, Robert? Well, okay. How is he faithful? Well, he's been made capable of helping. Verse 18 is saying something specific. If you pick it up out of the verse. Well, he, was, he was tempted just like humans were, so he's, he's gone through the... Okay, you're getting there. Yes, he's he's faithful through his suffering, and we're going to comment on that in a minute. But in verse 17, we want to reflect for a moment upon uh, the propitiation for our sins, which is part of the doctrine of the atonement. Now, there are two classic words for atonement for sin, or for removal of sin. And one of them is in that 17th verse, propitiation. What's the other word for atonement or removal of sin? Stephen? Expiation. Expiation. All right now, what's the difference between those two? Those are two different words. <clears throat> Since you defined expiation or gave us expiation, Stephen, we'll allow you to define it. Expiation is removal sin. How? Doesn't propitiation remove sin? Yes, expiation takes them away. Uh, propitiation actually there's a one now you're just, you're just dealing with expiation with your mouth full you have to deal with expiation I apologize for making you talk with your mouth full and break your mama's rules but nonetheless since you opened your big mouth to give us expiation
1: anybody want to help him out
0: while he's still chewing his dinner Expiation. David? Pay the penalty. Not quite. Expiation. To remove sin by? Shedding blood. Cleansing it. Right, now, expiation has the notion of washing it away. It's washing away by the shedding of blood, that is true but to expiate means to cleanse, to cleanse by removal, all right? Now, propitiation. David, what were you saying about expiation? Pay the penalty of sin. Pay the penalty of sin. All right, now, you're on the right track. What specifically is at issue here with propitiation?
2: It's God the Father adjudicating the sacrifice of God the Son as sufficient and complete for the payment of the penalty
0: of sin. True. Paying what aspect of the penalty of sin when you say propitiates? It satisfies what? God's law's
2: demand. God's law.
0: It does that, but it Specifically satisfies what? The penalty. The
1: penalty.
0: You're supposed to still be eating. No. Yes, he said the penalty. The wrath. The wrath of God. Okay? This is the satisfaction. That's where David had the notion of satisfaction, of paying the penalty. Satisfaction of God's wrath. That is, his just and righteous anger against sin. Now, uh, the word appears here in Hebrews 2.17 without uh, apology. In other words, the writer uses this word obviously indicating that God is angry with sin. He has a holy and just wrath against sin. And yet, in virtually all your modern translations, with the exception of the New American Standard, they will not translate that word propitiation. They will talk about forgiveness, or they'll use expiation, but they will not use that word propitiation. Now, why is that true? Sarai, why do you think that's true? Why don't they like that word propitiation
1: Mine actually says atonement, but then it says, and in a footnote, it's they, they say it, it covers God's wrath and taking away. So it does
0: give you a marginal note, okay? All right, well, wh- why would they not like to put that in the main body of the text? Christina, what do you think? What do you think? Um, I
1: don't know. I just not to think of God being filled with wrath or you know,
0: No, that's right. They don't like this idea of a God of wrath. They don't like this idea that God is angry with the wicked every day. They think that's an Old Testament idea, and Jesus came to get away from that idea, and therefore they're not going to leave that stand. Now, the most famous version in which this happened was the RSV. That's the Revised Standard Version, 1951. caused a great stink when it was first released because of this, in part, uh, downplayed the deity of Christ as well. Nonetheless, uh, there is a liberal objection, there's a modern objection to this notion of propitiation, and the word in the Greek does mean propitiation, that is the Greek text here of uh, Hebrews 2.17. So uh, consequently, they're uh, taking something out of the text, they're taking the literal meaning of the word out of the text because of their theological bias. Now, Uh, the most thorough examination of this language, of uh, both Hebrew and Greek vocabulary, uh, came from the late Leon Morris, who taught for years in Australia. His apostolic preaching of the cross is a classic. I have it noted there uh, in your handout. And if you want a detailed discussion of the uh, meaning of the words for atonement for sin, expiation, propitiation, etc., Uh, That's the classic work from a conservative or orthodox point of view. In that book, uh, Morris upholds the notion of propitiation here in the text because Christ must pay the penalty of God's wrath against our sin as well as cleanse its guilt and uh, remove its defilement. So, we'll put the two concepts together, expiation and propitiation, and we'll have a more thorough and balanced uh, doctrine of the atonement. Yes?
1: Um, you say that they say it's an Old Testament idea of God's wrath. Um, does God change between the Old and the New Testament? Is he a different type of God in the New Testament that he doesn't have wrath anymore? No, the new,
0: Je- Jesus just gives us a better idea of God. So the Old Testament idea of God was more primitive. The New Testament idea of God that comes with Jesus, Jesus' is a fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, is a more enlightened, it's an advance. it's an evolutionary idea of God as a God of love and grace. All right, now, with respect to the term people, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people, We need to think about that concept of the people of God. Obviously, um, these are God's people in verse 17. So there is a people of God for whom Christ makes propitiation. We've been talking about this epistle as epistle to the Hebrews. And so the people of God could also be called the Hebrews, We could call the people of God the old Israel, or we could call the people of God the Israel of God. Now, in all of that vocabulary, you'll notice that we're not really talking about ethnic Israel per se, because when we talk about the people of God, we're also talking about the eschatological people of God. When we're talking about the Hebrews. We're talking about the eschatological Hebrews. When we're talking about the old Israel. We're talking about the new Israel. And you know from Galatians three that that new Israel is not the Israel according to the flesh. When we're talking about the Israel of God, we are talking about the eschatological Israel of God. Therefore, the people of God is never really Jewish Judaism. It is not really ethnic Jews. The people of God is always that body of people that belong to him, of which the ethnic variety is simply a, shall we say, symbolic dimension. It is to be a, an organization or a social arena that points beyond itself. It points to an eschatological people, an eschatological Hebrews, an eschatological Israel, a new and everlasting Israel. Now, getting that down, then one will not get bogged down in whether or not the Israel, according to the flesh of the Old Testament, is the end-all and be-all of the fulfillment of prophecy and you won't therefore get uh, uh, stumble or trapped into dispensationalism, you'll always remember that national Israel is not the ultimate Israel. The ultimate Israel is the eschatological Israel. It is the Israel of God of the end of the age, or to take Paul's language in Galatians 6.16, the very true Israel of God of the end of the age. Now, I've thrown in a little quotation there from Gregory Nazianzus. Uh, Gregory Nazianzus, one of the great post-Nicene theologians of the East, Cappadocian. Cappadocia is in Central Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. The three great Cappadocians were Gregory Nazianzus, Basil the Great, and Gregory Nyssa. Basil the Great and Gregory Nyssa were brothers And these three, the so-called three Cappadocians—Gregory Nazianzus is arguably the greatest of the three magisterial theologian. Gregory Nazianzus is, uh, and, and the other two are the great defenders of Nicene orthodoxy in the East after the Nicene Council. Besides Athanasius, Athanasius lives to 377. You can see Gregory Nazianzus dies in 390. Now here's this little pissy <coughs> statement from Gregory, what Christ did not assume, he did not heal. So here in the context that we're talking about Christ taking on <coughs> human nature, uh, he takes on the uh, bondage of death, uh, he takes on the uh, <coughs> priestly intercession. What Christ did not assume, what he did not take on, He did not redeem or heal. Uh, Of course, he came to save us entirely. And that means that he assumed all aspects of our personality and our nature in order to redeem all aspects of our nature and personality. And that's what Gregory is driving at with this little uh, uh, little quip. Any questions on any of that? In verse 18, you will notice the closure of this unit. It goes back to the language of verse 10. The uh, suffering motif that appears as a bracketing device in 10 and 18. And if you have the older handout uh, handout number eight, you'll notice the alliteration in verse 18 where you have the three-fold pi in the Greek text as you had a three-fold pi alliteration in verse one of the Greek text. So I remind you that we're tying up, uh, the beginning and end of chapter two. But we come to the, uh, the really, uh, uh, poignant exegetical question here in verse 18. What is the meaning of Christ's suffering in that he was tempted or tested? What does our author mean by this? Well, you might first of all think of Christ being tempted. And when when I say Christ being tempted, what immediately comes to mind? Mike, what comes to mind?
2: A wilderness. a wilderness
0: temptation. So is that what the writer of Hebrews is referring to here? When Jesus was 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness tested by the devil. What do you think, Terry? Not necessarily. Pardon? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. That's a rather ambiguous... He uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, you really didn't come down on one side or the other. Are you trying to be a man in the middle? I'm thinking that, uh, is that, like he he was hungry and thirsty like we are, and sleep and tired, physically tired. Okay, so you're thinking of the general temptation that may come from just the fact that he was a human being. Okay, all right, there's another suggestion. So far, nobody's right. Robert. Uh, another thing that comes to mind is uh, during the Passion, where he was, where he wanted to get the this off of him, so. that the cup might pass from him. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yes. Very good. Go to the head of the class, Robert. So, um, yeah, we finally have a winner. <laughs> All right. Uh, here in this verse. Uh, The tempted in that which he has suffered is a reference to his passion, the suffering of his agony on the cross or facing that agony in the cross in which he was tested or tempted to avoid it. It is not a reference to the wilderness temptation uh, after John the Baptist baptizes him. It is not a reference to the temptations of his uh, human nature uh, that is vis a vis any uh, lack or needs. It is this specific crisis in which he enters as a priestly figure. Remember verse 17. He's setting the tone of this high priestly ministry of Christ. And as he approaches the exercise of that in Gethsemane and looks forward to the cross, where he is going to make the offering once and for all for sin then, of course, he's going to be buffeted by his own uh, weakness in that, his own human weakness in that he would wish or long for the cup to pass from him if it were his father's will, but thy will be done. <clears throat> All right, so uh, here's a specific uh, focus on the assaults or the temptations that came to Christ as he was enduring uh, his uh, the grief of uh, bearing the intercessory work for our sins in his priestly office. Now, why does our author do this? Why does he throw this into this epistle? All right, keep in mind that this community to which he is writing is a community which is undergoing persecution. Chapter 10, verses 31 to 34. We've looked at this several times already. So in this community in which persecution is going to bring a kind of pressure or temptation, he wants to encourage them by reminding them that Christ himself has entered into that type of experience before them. Now, he's not doing this in an exemplaristic way. He's doing it in a way in which they will enter into the fullness of the finished fullness of Christ's priestly work and therefore the persecution that's coming to them will not cause them temptation or at least that they will be strengthened and encouraged against the temptation as they face it the other thing that they're enduring is the reproach of their culture the reproach of the community or uh... the society around them they're being ridiculed as a result of identifying with christ and that brings its own temptation. It brings its temptation for you to kind of pull back, for you to kind of, you know, shut up, for you to uh, be, you know, you're not, you're not being politically correct so you don't say what you really think. Okay, but is that the kind of pressure that they were tempted to uh, submit to and bend to? All right, he's trying to encourage them. Christ did not deny himself. He did not deny his mission. He did not stand in front of Pilate or Herod and repudiate what he was about. He stood there and declared who he was and what he was about to do. Same thing in going to the cross. He doesn't quail in the face of this encounter that is in front of him. All of this is a means of encouragement to this community which is facing uh, the persecution and hardship, reproach, and even the loss of property and imprisonment. All right, one more point to notice here. Uh, Verse 17 containing that phrase or that term high priest is a foreshadowing device or a hook device because you're going to find that very same term in the first verse of chapter 3. So he is preparing you here at the end of chapter 2 with a term that he is going to open chapter 3 with, namely the phrase or the, the term high priest. All right, did that uh, raise any questions? Are there any unresolved issues there in chapter 2? What, what makes that interpretation concrete for you as far as just excluding it to the last temptation of Christ for the cross, besides what you mentioned about entering the high priesthood and so forth? Well, I, I think that the... Um, Motif of him dying, which is a prior in this section, verses fourteen, also focuses upon the passion or the death on the cross. Uh, the uh, The author is trying to um, uh, draw his audience into the experience of Christ in a way in which Christ would be facing the crisis of temptation himself in the face of suffering. And uh, consequently, to make that parallel identification, uh, he's going to draw upon the the climax of that experience in Christ's own uh, agony. That's the reason I think that here uh, uh, suffering as temptation or the facing of temptation and suffering is explicitly, uh, reserved to his role as the priestly mediator, and uh, and b- both being priest and victim, two two are going together here. And Boss incidentally agrees with me if, for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mary Lou, uh, I'm not sure I understand what uh, in the middle of
1: the page the letter to Cleodonus says the phrase, he did not heal yes. or redeem, because that should not assume it above and before his his
0: heavenly Father. What he assumes is our human nature. He assumes our human nature in order to redeem it. Okay, so if he did, if he doesn't assume it, he doesn't redeem it. Now he also means that everything that's a part of that human nature. Okay. He assumes our human nature subject to temptation in order to preserve or heal us from temptation. You could go through a whole list of things. What Nazianzus is trying to emphasize is that he entered into our nature, into our arena, into our world in order to redeem us in that world, to take us and heal, restore, reconcile, etc. all of that. That, That's what he's driving at there with that little pithy phrase. There was another question. I'll ask you later okay all right now that, that takes us on to chapter three and to the next handout which is lengthy we'll see how far we get this evening
1: <clears throat>
0: the first thing we notice in verses one to three of one to six of chapter three is a little outline that I've placed uh, on the The handout, I'm not going to go over that. Uh, I just want you to note it. Uh, This is the way the vocabulary falls out uh, in the Greek text. You can also see it in your English version more or less, but I'm putting it there just for your thoughts or for your consideration. But I want to begin with that word syncresis, which is a Greek word that means comparison. It means comparison. It's pronounced syncresis. So he begins in this chapter with a comparison. It's not the first time he's done this, but this is a rather explicit syncresis, And the pattern is the same as the pattern he has used before, a minore ad maius, that is, from the lesser to the greater. So let's think about this for a moment, looking back behind the third chapter. In other words, before he uh, does this here in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, where has he done it before? Now, in that little uh, uh, parallel uh, lines of the verses and then Christ, and you've got that uh, right-hand arrow. Remember, in mathematics, that right-hand arrow means what? Greater than, than. very good. All right, so in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, would you remember Christ is greater than... Loretta, who do you you remember? Kay, do you remember Christ is greater than... Angels. No, not in 1 to 4. But I will call on you when we come to 5 to 14. (laughs) Thank you, Kay. But in 1 to 4. Maureen? The prophets. He is greater than the prophets. He has spoken in time past through the prophets, and these last days he's spoken through his Son. So, he's greater than the prophets. Now, verses 5 to 14, K. Well, my
1: verse 4 says angels.
0: That's why I said angels. Okay. Uh, I'll give you partial credit for that, but... <laughs> but notice how he begins in verse 1. All right, in other words, he's trying to show the superiority of the Son to the previous agents of Revelation, and they, those are the prophets. Now, in verses 5 to 14, he's got a very lengthy description of his superiority to the angels, as you suggested. So, Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets, greater than the angels. In chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, he's greater than... Adam. Adam. Okay, I want to say that a little more uh, comprehensively. He's greater than Adamic man. Adamic man. Verses 10 to 15 of chapter 2. He's greater than creation? Creation? No. Who's the chief character in that section? Who's the antagonist? Satan? Yes, he's greater than Satan. Now, 16 to 18, i put a question mark on this one. I'm not going to push this one real hard. But he's greater than whom in the section 16 to 18 of chapter 2? It's Abraham, yes, it's Abraham. So I'm gonna put a question mark beside that. But there's no question of who he's greater than when we come to chapter three, is there? Frank, who is he greater than?
1: Moses. He's greater than
0: Moses in chapter three, one to six. All right. Notice this sequential pattern. This sequential increases. This is a building paradigm. This is a paradigm of comparative greatness. He is saying what Paul will say in other terms, the surpassing excellence of Christ. Why is he greater? Bing, 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 right down the line. Why is he greater than the prophets? Why is he greater than the angel? Why is he greater than Adamic man? Why is he greater than Satan? Why is he greater than Abraham? Why is he greater than Moses? Why? And the audience says uniformly in one voice. He is God, exactly. He is God the Son. He is the Son of the Father. All right, so he is greater because he is the very imprint of God's nature. Chapter 1, verse 3. That cannot be said of the prophets, cannot be said of the angels, cannot be said of Adamic man, cannot be said of Satan, obviously, cannot be said of Abraham, certainly cannot be said of Moses can only be said of one in the whole history of redemption, and that is Jesus the Christ. All right, so his theme of continuing to promote the surpassing glory and excellence of the Son of God is done in relationship to this unfolding history of redemption pattern. You see, he's taking you through that Old Testament sequence, causing you to think, about the uh, glory of the Son of God even greater than the prophets, than the angels, than Adam himself, than Abraham and his seed, etc., etc. To Moses, the great lawgiver, the greatest of the Old Testament characters in many Jewish estimates, Jesus stands greater. All right, he's not at the end of this. This syncretic pattern is also going to continue through the rest of the epistle, that he's brought us to Moses and the era of the Exodus and the wilderness sojourn, as this third chapter is going to demonstrate with the citations of Psalm 95, reflecting on Numbers chapter 14. Notice how we're moving. See, we're moving redemptive historically through the whole history of salvation, as we're moving through this epistle. All right, now. Uh, Yes? Can
1: you explain why you have the question mark beside Abraham? Is it because of the high priestly language?
0: No, it's because it's somewhat out of sequence, and I'm not sure that... He's focusing on Abraham there as a kind of emblem of the patriarchal era or whether he's just incidentally mentioned there. OK, I'm, that's that's one reason I put a little question mark beside it. I don't want to push it too hard. But at the same time, you know, if somebody wants to push me hard on it, you know, I might dig in my heels. But it, it's, it's more of a suggestion. I'm not as I'm not as certain of that one as I am of the others. That's my point. All right. Now. Mary Lou, are there any apostles today?
1: I don't run into any. You're
0: not in the Abyssinian Apostolic Church, obviously. I don't mean to poke fun at our brothers in that uh, communion, but of course there are many who claim that that is so. Mary Lou says she hasn't met any. Well, then it raises the question... What is an apostle? Or what is the unique qualification for an apostle?
1: Having a view of the Savior, or uh, Jesus. How? Eyewitness.
0: No, 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 how?
1: Yeah, eyewitness. Well, no, because...
0: Eyewitness of what? I'm so close. You're on the right track.
1: Yeah.
0: Loretta, what, what is it? What's the, what's the unique? Why isn't Mark an apostle? He's not. He's a writer of a New Testament book, but he's not an apostle. Peter is. Okay? They, they
1: witnessed all of Jesus' life, his resurrection,
0: his ascension. His what? His resurrection. See that's the clue. <clears throat> that's what Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, doesn't he? He says, He appeared to all of them, and he's talking about all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me, as one born out of due time. All right, so the qualification for an apostle is to have seen the risen Christ. Paul saw him where did Paul see him, Kay? On the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus. He did not see him in his post resurrection meeting with his disciples 40 days in the period of 40 days after his resurrection. He didn't see him then. He saw him on the road to Damascus, but it was the risen Christ whom he saw. Maureen? Weren't there many people
2: who saw the risen Christ, though, who are not apostles?
0: Yes, but they don't claim the apostolic mantle. It's only those 13 who claim it. And Paul goes through enlisting the categories of them. Uh, in that 7th verse of 1 Corinthians. So, <clears throat> historically, this has been the distinguishing mark of an apostle. They actually saw the risen Christ. They were eyewitnesses to him, either because they handled him and touched him, as <clears throat> appears to be the, uh, what happened when they 500 saw him at once in that 1 Corinthians 15 narrative, or <clears throat> they saw him as one born out of due time, as Paul Testifies uh, in that same chapter. So, a person can only claim to be an apostle if he has been an eyewitness to the glory of the risen Christ. That is not true after that group of individuals dies, including the Apostle Paul. Therefore, there are no apostles after the end of the lives of those individuals. All right, back in the back first.
1: So, did the, I can't remember, is it Matthias who they picked to replace Judas? Did he see, was he an apostle? Did he see Christ?
0: I think so, but that's an opinion. I think he's, I think he's chosen because he's part of that apostolic band. I can't prove it because he's not he's not in any of the stories of the eyewitnesses. But nonetheless, I suspect that he's part of the group that is giving the, for whom the lot is being cast. He's part of that group who could be commissioned in the replacement of Judas. <clears throat> David, you had a comment. Well, it, it um, essentially,
2: that point to whether that selection was, in fact, uh, ordained of God or whether they had. Miscalculated and God was not choosing between those two at that time.
0: Um, I'll let that go. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That's going to take me too far off the track. Uh, Alright, now, uh, <clears throat> this is one of the reasons that in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition we don't believe in the office of an apostle. That is an extraordinary office that has passed away. We believe that there are distinguishing offices in the early church, and some of them were extraordinary, and they passed away with that era. The ordinary offices are the office of elder or minister, or deacon, etc. Those are the ordinary, ongoing offices. So, if you want to call yourself the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that's an ongoing office. You have the right to claim that. That's a continuing, ordinary office of uh, the Church of Jesus Christ. (laughs) All right. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle, Ah, interesting, is it not? In this epistle, in which we're talking about eschatological finality, Jesus is called apostle. He is the eschatological apostle. What does the word apostle mean? One who is sent. One who is sent, correct. Because he was sent from the Father. So the role of an apostle is to be sent from God to man. That's the arrow there underneath. That uh, <clears throat> that term, okay? He is descent from God to man. <clears throat> All right. What about a priest? What's the office of a priest? There he's called apostle and high priest. He puts the two together. What's that? What's the role of a priest or a high priest? Christina. He makes the offering. A... He represents. The
1: sacrifice.
0: He, re... he represents. The apostle represents God to man. The high priest represents. Man. Um, Terry? Terry. Man to to God. Notice, this is the reason he puts them together here. This is the full-orbed work of Christ. Namely, he is sent from God to man, but he is also a great high priest who represents man before God. Aha! Aha! He's returning to what? He's returning to his parabola, isn't he? He's returning to his redemptive historic parabola from God to man as apostle, from man to God as high priest. And in so doing, putting these two together, he's got this journey motif in the background. That is, Christ is the pilgrim from God to man and the returning pilgrim from man to God. So he's reinforcing little nuances, little facets of his argument, of the development of his uh, theological case. And he's doing it using this vocabulary, just one word or two word vocabulary, titles, offices. And when he does it, he's got them loaded with freight. They're poignant. He is the apostle of the end of the age and As eschatological apostle, he draws into the drama of his apostolic function the semi-eschatological apostles whom he sends to the men of the nations, men and women and children of the nations, particularly that one born out of due time, that last of the apostles, who is at least worthy to be called the apostles, whom he commissions on that Damascus road to be what? You will be my voice to the nations. Not just Israel, but my people, my Hebrews, my Israel, my eschatological Israel of God of the end of the age, my eschatological people, I send you to them throughout all the nations of the world. You, Paul, you, greatest of all. Apostles. The last is the greatest. Well, all right. Let's see again the the genius of our author as he uses what appear to be very incidental terms to make very profound uh, theological observations. All right. Now, he is the apostle and high priest of a heavenly calling. Now, heavenly. Here is origin and destiny. Origin comes out of this arena and destiny. He is destined for that arena, which means that this heavenly term is a pilgrim motif again. It is a pilgrim motif for the eschatological pilgrim, the eschatological apostle, apostolic priestly pilgrim. The eschatological one who comes as the uh, heavenly uh, son and returns to the glory of his heavenly father. Always in the background of this epistle is this pilgrim and sojourn motif. It is the pilgrim and sojourn motif of the Son of God himself. It's the pilgrim and sojourn motif of Christ the Lord himself. And because it is the pilgrim motif of his sojourn, so it is the drama of your sojourn who belong to him. This is your story. Christ's pilgrimage is your story. His heavenly origin and destiny is your story. Your life has originated in heaven and your life is destined for heaven in Christ. In Christ. All right, now, he is the high priest of our confession. Now, the issue here with the term confession is 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 it the act of confessing? <clears throat> is he talking about this community confessing the Apostles' Creed? Now, of course, the Apostles' Creed probably wasn't in existence at this point, but this is just an example. Is he using, uh, as it happens in the Sunday evening services, the Nicene Creed, or the Apostles' Creed, as an act of confession? Is that what he's talking about? And if he's not talking about the act of confessing, then what's he mean by this confession? You have a thought, Katie?
1: Well, I think it just means not not a formal confession, but just what we believe, what we say. We believe.
0: Okay, the content of the confession. In other words, not the act of saying a confession, but the content inside the confession. Okay. Oh! oh. And in other words. You're supposed to think about the content when you say those creeds, aren't you? You're supposed to think about what they mean. So here we have. Now, Loretta is going to give us her confession. She is going to give us the content of her confession based on Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. And what would you confess about Christ based on Hebrews 1, 2, or 3? Just one thing, Loretta. That he's God. Very good. What would you say, Kay? Something else. What What content would you confess? Based on what you've learned from Hebrews already. Did you
1: say me? Yes, okay. Oh, he's my Savior.
0: True. That isn't emphasized so much here, but that's fine. What else? Anybody else want to suggest something else?
2: Greater
0: than creation of creatures. He's greater than creation, okay, because he is the creator. Okay, confess him as creator. Anything else? Man. He is man. He is Adamic man, isn't he? He is a son of man and a Adamic man. Anything else?
1: His pilgrimage. pilgrimage. Very good. He
0: is, he is the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He is the great pilgrim. Right. With whom you sojourn. You sojourn along with him. Alright, now do you see the richness of what you have said? What you have learned from the first two chapters already gives you a whole content of confessing Christ. And so your prayers are enriched. Do you see? your own prayer life becomes enriched as you confess Christ in your praying. As you pray adoringly to him as your Savior, your Lord, your God, your pilgrim sojourner, your Lamb who has broken the exodus of bondage, your Deliverer from Satan who has broken the power of death, your High Priest, your Apostle, the one who was sent to you to bring God's word to you, and we're not at the end of it. All right, so your drab and sterile prayer life has just gotten a shot of adrenaline. The content of your confession in prayer, because what is prayer? Prayer is ACTS, right? Prayer is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And the C is confession, And so you're confessing, what are you confessing? You're talking to Jesus as, I confess you as my, I adore you as my, I love you as my. That's what your prayers are like, right? Because in your closet where you meet with your father in secret, you pour out your heart. And here you see, you have imagery and identification and language and titles which expand the range of what you understand your Savior and your God to be. All right. Now, we're not going to remove the act of confessing from this. So it is both the act of confessing and the content. But here I wanted to put the emphasis upon the content to remind you that when you repeat those creeds, that you don't get into the trap of humdrum about them. And that you remember that there is poignant, powerful, rich and deep biblical content in what you are saying, what you are reciting, even if you have memorized them. And they're precious to you and they just flow out of you and you don't have to use the book to say them as I do because I never did memorize them. Even after 40 years, I still have to look at them. But you see... You're thinking about what you're saying as you're doing. You're just not just rolling off your tongue. The same thing with using the Lord's prayer and worship service is not just habituated to you. It's not just rote. You're thinking about what you're saying. Now, we all have to be reminded of that. That these liturgical forms are not things that we just go through the motions of. There is very rich biblical content here. And so we want to confess the content as we are in the act of confessing. Question?
1: Um, I understand what you're saying, but um, isn't, I don't know, in the Greek, is the confession tied to the high priestly role? And so is that just Christ fulfilling the confession of sins that the Old Testament... Israelites had to come. I, I I understand what you're saying about the, the creedal confession, but is this is this, I don't know. It just looks to me like it's more the sin confession that they had well, when they brought their sacrifices. Okay, I'm using
0: creedal because I have a form that has content to it to make an analogy. I don't think there's a creedal confession here necessarily. But I think that the content of the confession of the church is at issue here. I don't think it's necessarily the fact that the high priest uh, confesses the sins of the people before the Lord. I don't think it's necessarily that, okay? I'm not going to rule that out entirely. Uh, but I think the emphasis here is upon how you're confessing Christ as high priest and apostle, how you're getting this God-man-man-God man, man, God drama into your content, which takes you back to what's been unfolded to this point in the previous two chapters.
1: Just, how is the Greek aligned? I mean, in terms of the names, you have Jesus, you have the Apostle, and you have High Priest. Is it a progressive um, advancement from mm-hmm. the High Priest to the Apostle to Jesus? I left my Greek
0: text at home. <laughs> well, tell her to go home and get it for you. What's that? I'm sorry, Scott? It's, it's Apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus? I still think the emphasis is on content, okay? But, uh, you know, it's a legitimate question. All right, now, um, verse 2 takes us to the motif of this section. All right, we have this increases, which is the uh, literary pattern comparison. Now we have the motif uh, of the section in uh, verse two and following. And what is that motif? What's the dominant motif of the next six, the uh, next four verses, next five verses? Actually, two, three, four, five, and six. Anyone? Contrast between Jesus and Moses. We've already got that when we're talking about increases. What's the specific motif here? House. house. Spell it. H O U
1: S E. House. House.
0: No. Sorry, I didn't. I was I was listening to something else. What's the issue? The issue is Stephen. Faithfulness, faithfulness. faithfulness, exactly. So the motif is faithfulness. That's the dominant motif of the comparison of the increases. All right now, his method, his method, if you will notice, is comparison in verse two and contrast in verse three. So this syncretic method or syncretic method is going to use comparison and contrast. The characters are obviously Christ and Moses. And the house is going to be the object or the locus of their fidelity. And what is the house? People of God. People of God. Good. You're almost there. Okay. It is the community under God. Now, it's the people of God in general, all right? But it is the community. This is an arena. This is a domain. House is broader than just family, okay? This is an arena uh, of, uh, 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 of operation. Now, as such, this community is external. And internal, visible and invisible, outward and inward. This is fundamental to the argument of the epistle to the Hebrews. What is called, what we might call these spatial relationships. The visible, invisible, inward, outward, external, and internal aspects of the house of God, of the community of God, of the people of God. No, we won't use the word church. Okay? We're going to talk about something which is broader than the church. All right. Now hold on to that idea because we want to come back to it after the break when we start to think about the specific use of the paradigm from Numbers from just yes, Numbers 14 and Psalm 95 that the house is visible and invisible, inward and outward, external and internal. Okay. Coffee break. All right, we're up to verse three. And the term glory. <clears throat> Remembering that we've noted under the method that verse three is the contrastive element. Of this unfolding paradigm in these uh, six verses, and so how would you use glory contrastively between Moses and Christ? When I put Moses and glory together, what springs into your mind? What do you wheels start turning on? Frank, you looked up a minute there. Are your wheels turning? All right, then I won't pursue that. Peter, you were going to say something? Yeah, that Moses reflected the glory when he came down off the mount, but Christ was the glory. All right, Your your second point is spot on, okay? Christ is the glory from chapter 1, verse 3. All right? So there's the contrastive element. Moses reflected the glory, as Pete noted. Is it any stronger than that? Stephen? He got to see God's glory. Yes, he got to see God's glory. Okay, In Exodus 24, he sees God's glory on Sinai. In Exodus 33, he is hidden in the cleft of the rock and God's glory passes by and he sees the hinder parts or the back parts of God's glory. This is referred to in Numbers chapter 12, verse 8, that God says he will speak to him face to face because of his glory. Moses has been ushered or invited into God's glory. But notice... He is not, as Pete pointed out, he is not the glory of God himself. This is all either reflective or uh, he enters into its uh, majesty, its aura, but he does not personify it. It is not equated. uh, That glory is not equated with Moses. Okay. Now, the builder of the house in verse 3 is whom? It is Christ. The builder of the house in verse 4 is... It is God. All right. All right, now solve the equation for me. Good
1: Twenty-five
0: equals. Let's put it this way: ten plus fifteen.
1: Twenty-five
0: equals. Okay. At this point of the equation or the formula, quantities equal the same quantity are equal to each other, as you can see. 5 times 5 is 25. 5 squared is 25. And 5 times 2 is 10. 5 times 3 is 15. 10 plus 15 is 25. All right. Now, I just recited an old plain geometry theorem. Quantities equal to the same quantity are equal to each other. All right, let's take a look. The builder of the house. In verse 3 is Christ. In verse 4... The builder of the house is God. Therefore, those three little dots mean therefore. Therefore, quantities equal to the same quantity are what? Equal to each other. Christ is God. All right, this is a subtle way of our author, once again, underscoring the deity of Christ where he identifies them with the builder. All right now that's a little mathematical game to uh, illustrate the uh, uh, axiom the plane geometry axiom I know for most of you it's been a long time since you were in plane geometry but that's one that sticks to you uh, <clears throat> quantities equal to the same quantity are equal to each other okay so here we have quantity equal to the same quantity are equal to each other or The left side and the right side of the equal sign is always equal. You can always say that when you put an equal sign in math, you can put an is there. Five squared is five times two plus five times three. Okay. the builder is Christ. The builder is God. Therefore, Christ is God. The verb to be is an equal sign because you don't have a predicate object. You have a predicate nominative. What is on the right side of the is and on the left side of the is are equal. Okay. Now, verse 5. Moses is described in this verse as a what? faithful servant. servant. He is a servant. Christ is described as, verse 6, the Son. And the Son, according to chapter 1, verse 2, is the, is the what? Go ahead and look back. Chapter 1, verse 2. He is the heir. Remember the parable of the vineyard. That he sent the ambassadors to the vineyard. And last of all, he sent his son, the heir of the vineyard. They will not kill the heir, right? But they did. All right, so the son is the heir. Moses is not the heir. The contrast again that has been present since verse 3. Contrasting Moses and Christ. Now in this fifth verse, you have a virtual direct quotation of Numbers 12:7. Moses was faithful in all his house. It's interesting that that verse, Numbers 12, 7, also includes in the context, that is Numbers 12, verse 8, a comment about Moses seeing or uh, beholding God's glory, which is another motif that we had in verse 3. right, now the incident in Numbers 12 is the rebellion rebellion of Miriam and Aaron against Moses for his Cushite wife, for his black bride. Therefore, there's no biblical objection to mixed marriages if all other things are equal. Moses had a black wife. God approved. In fact, he disapproved those that criticized him for it. He, in fact, cursed her with leprosy for objecting to it. The only thing that stands in the way of a marriage is whether or not one of them is a Christian or not. That's the only thing that stands in the way. Race is no objection. Is it? Is it? No. You can have a black and salt and pepper couple. No problem. If they're both professing Christians. I hope we're over that. In the Reformed faith, I hope we're over that. Okay, all right. Now, in verse 6, we come to the first conditional if clause in the epistle. And we want to think about biblical conditionality, namely the if-then sequence. Now the thesis under consideration here is the if condition presupposes one can or is able to perform the condition. Where we have this if-then language in the Bible as we have it here in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, then ought means can. If I ought, then I can. If I ought, then I am able. The if demand, the if obligation, the if condition presumes that then I am able to perform the condition. I can perform the obligation. I am able to complete the demand. Therefore, the end then depends upon my ability to perform the beginning, the if. Now, you may wonder why I have beginning and end there, and I will point you to verse 14, where we have the second, uh, actually the third if clause in this section. All right, now, you may think that this is an esoteric discussion. It is not. I want to illustrate If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. There is an if and the conditional clause, which comes right out of Acts chapter 16, verse 31. So the thesis under consideration is, with respect to that statement, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved. If you ought, then you are able You see, that's the thesis we're testing. If you ought to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If, it, if the demand for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is presented, then according to this thesis, then you are able to perform the condition and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This means that you are able to perform the condition then be saved on the basis of your performance of the if demand. The end of the condition being saved depends upon your ability to perform the beginning condition if you believe, the if-then-end-beginning tandem. All right, now we want to test this. We want to test this thesis. We want to see whether or not this is a biblically correct or orthodox understanding of an if-than conditional statement in the scriptures. All right? All right, now, before we proceed, I point out a little structural uh, pattern. In this section, you'll notice that verses 6 and 7 are structured exactly the same way verses 14 and 15 are structured. And it is in those verses that we have the if clauses. We have four of them. In verse 6, we have the first. In verse 7, we have the second, if you hear his voice. In verse 14, we have the third, if we hold fast. And in verse 15, we have a repeat of verse 7, if you hear his voice. We have four if-then clauses here. This section of Hebrews is spewing out conditional clauses. If then, conditional clauses. All right, now let's begin with the exegetical observations. First of all, the motif. We notice the motif in verses 1 to 6 is faithfulness. Now the motif from verses 7 and following is what? Okay, you're smiling. But it
1: looks like it's the opposite. Like it's un- unbelief. Un- in, what,
0: in what context? Give me the historical context. What time are they talking about, okay? The
1: uh, desert.
0: The desert, or the wilderness sojourn. Okay, so the motif is the wilderness or the wilderness generation. We could also say it's Moses and the wilderness generation. Or we could say it's Moses and the Exodus and the wilderness generation. OK, so all of that is the motif. There's the historical pattern behind this section. And Psalm 95 is making that very clear. OK, alluding particularly to Numbers 14. But nonetheless, we're talking about, as Kay pointed out, the wilderness or desert Pilgrimage of Israel after Moses led them forth in the Exodus. All right, now let's start to ask some questions about this motif. The condition by nature of Israel in Egypt sinful Sinful or fallen, fallen or in exile. Persecuted. Bonded. How about unregenerate? Unregenerate. Yes, yeah, sinful by nature, unregenerate by nature. When we say by nature, we're talking what they are as they have come forth as sons and daughters of Adam. They are unregenerate. A question is, in this state of nature... Are they in a state of ability or are they in a state of inability?
1: Inability.
0: They are a state of inability. Okay. Now, not only is that our Reformed faith, not only is that the heads of doctrine of the Canons of Dort, which emphasizes total inability, in addition to total depravity. Remember, when we're talking about total depravity, when we're talking about the sinfulness of man, we're also talking about a Siamese twin inseparably connected to total depravity is total inability. You cannot talk about human depravity without talking about human inability. Not if you're a Calvinist. You don't leave that off the shelf when you talk about sinners. All right, so here we have Israel in Egypt by nature in a state of unregenerate sinful inability. They are unable to get themselves out of bondage, aren't they? They are totally unable. All right, now, the condition by Exodus from Egypt. What is the condition of Israel by Exodus from Egypt? They are set free from slavery. They are liberated from bondage. So participation in the Exodus generation is the participation of Israel according to the flesh. That's the participation of the visible Israel. All of visible Israel came out of bondage. They were set free by liberation. Participation in the eschatological Israel. Participation in the Israel according to the remnant of grace. That's not my vocabulary. That's Paul's vocabulary. Romans chapter 11, the remnant of grace. Participation in the eschatological exodus is participation in the invisible Israel the invisible Israel. So we are making a distinction at the exegetical level here between visible Israel from invisible Israel. We are making a distinction between external Israel from internal Israel. We are making the distinction that Paul makes in Romans 9, verse 6. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. All of visible Israel is not necessarily invisible Israel. They are not all of Israel who are of Israel. All right. Now, the next level of this exegetical observation. Yes. Can you
1: repeat what the participation in Exodus, I, I missed
0: The Exodus participation is visible, that's Israel according to the flesh. The eschatological participation is invisible, that's eschatological, that's Israel according to the remnant of grace. And where does Paul say the remnant of grace? That's in Romans
1: eleven. Okay,
0: no, that's fine. Go ahead. All right. Now, did God promise a land of rest before the Exodus? Before he left them out of bondage, did he promise them a land of rest? Yes, he did. Exodus 3, verse 8. Exodus 3, verse 17. Exodus 6, verse 4. Exodus 13, verses 5 and 11. Before they ever took one sandal step out of their slave huts, God had promised them a land of rest. Five times he had promised it to them. Was that land visible or invisible to Israel in Egypt? Was that land of rest visible or invisible? Stephen, you're smiling. I never thought of it that way. Of course you did. You're not reading Hebrews 3 correctly. Okay. All right, now you're thinking about it. Because I trust we're enabling you to read Hebrews 3 correctly, okay? Now, and even the Exodus paradigm correctly. Obviously, the answer is it was invisible to them. They hadn't seen it, correct? It was not visible to them, but nonetheless, it had been promised to them. All right, now, trusting God's promise. Trusting God's promise that there was this invisible land of rest... Destined to them would have meant what? Possessing the invisible substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's what this writer says faith is in chapter 11, verse 1. And thus they would have possessed the invisible land that they had never seen by faith not having yet seen it. Faith would have brought them the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If they had believed in that promise of the invisible, they would have possessed it. They would have had it as a down payment of their faith in their heart. Stick with me, stick with me. Did Israel believe in God's promise at the outset of the Exodus? Mary Lou? Well, so. No, they did not. And how do you know?
1: They were complaining all the time and doing everything in the gold cap and all the rest.
0: Notice of the- Psalm ninety-five: unbelief in the wilderness. They obviously didn't believe in God's promise of rest at the outset of the exodus because they manifested unbelief in the wilderness when that rest was even closer to them. Well then, by what means did they participate in the exodus? Now here you'll notice my single quotes because I'm using the word ironically. They did have a kind of face. They did have a kind of ironic face. Okay, faith in what? Yes, faith in what? Stephen, faith in what? The the external miracles that they'd see. Fides Fides. miraculorum. He had this in class today, that's the reason I picked on him. Faith of miracles. They had faith in miracles, but notice you put the word faith here, as we're thinking of it, in single quotes, ironic quotes, is faith in miracles saving faith? No. How do you know? Besides the Exodus generation.
1: They die in the wilderness.
0: Besides that. His faith in Christ. Because Jesus says, in Matthew 7, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do many wonderful miracles in your name? And he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Alright, so the faith of miracles is not saving faith. Consequently, what Israel believed when they went out of Egypt was God's miraculous provision to get them out of bondage Jesus is an escape hatch he's fire insurance that's the only reason that I like Jesus I don't want to go to hell love Jesus for himself love him as the fairest among ten thousand no I don't think of that at all I just think of I don't want to get punished and so I'm I'm paying up my insurance premium I'm going to use Jesus as a ticket out of hell. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what Israel is doing? We're going to use Moses as a ticket out of bondage. We're going to use this miraculous power as a way of escaping agony, suffering, death, exile, bondage. Is this faith in the invisible God? No, it is not. How do you know? Because they rebelled in the wilderness with an evil heart of unbelief. Psalm 95 again. Notice how Psalm 95 is pounding this issue about the character of the visible or external Israel. Did Israel accept the grace of God in the Exodus liberation? No, they did not. How do you know? Because they spurned His grace. They spurned His grace and demanded what? Take us back to Egypt. Exactly. Take us back to Egypt. Numbers chapter 14, verse 5. Rehearsed in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. And repeated in Stephen's great speech in Acts 7, 39. The Bible pounds this theme home three times. That they rejected God's grace by spurning his invitation. And not only spurning it, but saying, we want to go back to the leeks and rutabagas of Egypt. All right. How does this show, or what does this show about the heart of Israel? That they had a hard heart of unbelief. Hard Heart of unbelief. Psalm 95 again. Notice, the exegesis is coming right out of the text of the Psalm that the writer is using here. And so what do we know about the nature of Israel? The visible, the, the visible Israel at <clears throat> the Exodus. They are unregenerate in a state of total inability which means participation in the exodus liberation does not equal regeneration. Membership in the physical or visible Israel, the Israel according to the flesh, does not equal regeneration. External and visible Israel is not equal to internal and invisible Israel, the Israel of God. External, internal, outward, inward, this is the paradigm that Psalm ninety-five and that the writer is borrowing upon in order to make his comments about this if and then conditionality. In the background. In fact, on the outer limits of this whole exegesis of Psalm 95 is this structure of this if-then paradigm, verses six, seven, and fourteen and fifteen. Alright. <clears throat> now. Let's look at an if-then sequence. If Israel begins in an unregenerate nature, then Israel ends in death in the wilderness, their carcasses dropped in the desert. If Israel begins in hardness of heart, that is, they have a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh, then Israel ends outside of God's rest. Their carcasses drop in the wilderness. If Israel begins in an evil heart of unbelief, then Israel ends in the consequences of the wages of sin, which is death. Their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. If Israel begins in an outward, external, visible participation for the sake of escape, then Israel ends in the consequences of the fruit of unbelief, simply using Moses as an escape ticket and their carcasses drop in the wilderness. If Israel begins in the outward, external, visible benefit From the supernatural or miraculous power of God, then Israel ends in the possession of the not yet consequences of exclusion from heaven. They shall not enter into my rest. Summing it up then. If Israel's beginning ends as above then Israel's ending was present in the beginning. It is very important for us to understand what verse 14 is doing to illustrate this if-then conditionality. Notice in verse 14 the phrases beginning and end. They are implicit in verse 6. End is present in that. Beginning is implied. The if then beginning-end sequence is related to the conditionality clause. If Israel begins, if Israel's beginning ends as it does, their carcasses dropped in the wilderness, then Israel's ending was present at the beginning. You catch it? You see the play that he's using. The if-then sequential conditionality is related to beginning and ending paradigm. Beginning in the end, end in the beginning. All right, now, that's the bad news. But there is good news. If Israel begins in a new, regenerate nature, then... Israel ends in life. If Israel begins with a heart of flesh, a soft heart, then Israel ends in God's eschatological rest. If Israel begins with a genuine heart of faith, then Israel ends with the consequences of the gift of God's grace, the fruits of God's grace. If Israel begins in participation for the sake of the glory of God, not as an escape hatch, then Israel ends with the consequences of the fruit of faith. They shall enter into my rest. If Israel begins in the possession of the promised rest already, that is, if they actually do possess The substance of things hoped for in the beginning. Then Israel ends in the possession of the not yet blessings of inclusion in heaven. And what is the transition between the if and then? God must act. God must act internally, invisibly, inwardly. The if must be supplied by God's act of grace so that the then will follow. The only way that the end in the beginning and the beginning resulting in the end in terms of entering into God's rest, the only way that's going to occur is if God graciously works inside that Israel that invisible Israel, that internal Israel of God, in order to give them a heart of belief, not an evil heart of unbelief, in order to give them a soft heart, not a hard heart, in order to give them a delight in his everlasting rest, not a contempt for his Land of rest. God must provide the ability in the if-then tandem. God must provide the ability for the end to come out of the beginning, the beginning to then reach its end. All right, let's summarize. If Israel does not begin with indwelling grace, then she ends without indwelling grace. If Israel does not begin with faith by grace, then she ends without faith by grace. Notice the if-then sequence, which is based upon Psalm 95, here from Hebrews 3. If Israel does not begin with a heart of flesh, then she ends without a heart of flesh. If Israel does not begin with possessing God's rest, then she ends without possessing God's rest. If Israel does not begin as Israel according to the promise, then she ends as Israel according to the flesh. If Israel does not begin as the remnant of grace, then she ends rejected from grace. If Israel does, does begin with a heart of stone, then she ends with a heart of stone. If Israel does begin with an evil heart of unbelief, then she ends with an evil heart of unbelief. The if-then sequence of Psalm 95, which is sandwiched between the if-then clauses of this section, are a dramatic revelation of the condition of the external visible Israel according to the flesh. Therefore, If any in Israel have the condition, the if condition, then how do they have it? If any of them do have it, Joshua and Caleb, if any of them do have it, how do they have it? They have it by God performing it in them. If they have the condition, the if, then God supplied the condition For God the Lord brought them into union with himself, in whom the in and then are perfectly united and perfected. God the condition maker, at the same time God the condition performer. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. But I am unable to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and then be saved. I will perform the condition in you. I will join you unto my own life. And then you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved because I will work that in you. The condition that I demand from you, I will perform in you. And then, having performed that condition in you, you will be saved. And I will do that by a marvelous act of uniting you unto myself. I will join you unto myself. I will give you the ability that is in me. I will change your disabled and totally unable heart into a heart able to respond to in faith and trust and be saved. I will do it for you. I will do it in you because no one else can do it. You are totally disabled, totally hard of heart, totally without grace, totally dead. Totally unregenerate. And the only way you will ever be able is if I perform that ability graciously, lovingly, powerfully, permanently in you. Alright. <clears throat> if one does not have the condition the if, then God did not supply the condition since he did not bring that one into the union with his condition-fulfilling self. So if one begins with the condition, the if, then God began a work in that one, and he will complete the work begun. Philippians 1.6. How does God do this? Through one who is the beginning and the end. Mm. Verse 14, beginning and end. How is it ever going to be accomplished? In me. Through one who is the beginning and end. One in whom if and then are joined in a union in himself. Through one who demands the condition and performs the condition in himself. Through one who is the end in the beginning, if now, then not yet, and that both now and forevermore. The only reversal of the sinful if-then paradigm is through the divine sufficiency. The God who requires the condition, the if Must supply or provide the condition, the then which he requires. That's grace. That's what the Bible means by grace. Divine grace supplies the condition which divine obligation or divine demand requires. The totally unable, unregenerate heart, obligated to believe on the Lord, discovers that very condition performed within itself by all sufficient grace. By my ability, I believed on the Lord Jesus? You've got to be kidding me. You're a dead sinner, totally unable. You can't bring yourself out of bondage any more than Israel could bring herself out of bondage. You're going to die stinking slaves. Unless God performs the condition. Jesus can stand outside that tomb of Lazarus. If you want to come out, Lazarus, then I will let you walk and talk with me. If you want to come out, Lazarus, I know you've been dead for four days, but come on, listen, listen. Perform the condition, Lazarus, perform the condition. If you do it, then we get to talk again. The only way the condition is going to be performed, if it's the one that demands for him to come out, gives him the power to come out. That's the only way the condition is going to be performed, isn't it? That's grace. That's what grace is. Grace is God who demands the condition, giving the condition which he demands by his favor, his electing favor. His almighty choice. That's what grace is in the Bible. So, this is also called regeneration. Effectual calling, being eschatologically born. That is, born from heaven or born from above. But we're not done. The richness of this paradigm goes not only from the exegetical considerations here from Psalm 95, it only goes to the summary dogmatic conclusions or observations from that fourth page that we have, but there are biblical theological considerations. What is the if-then paradigm to one in Christ? What is the if-then paradigm to one saved by grace? What is the if-then paradigm in view of the eschatological aspect or the eschatological nature of faith as we defined it from Hebrews 11, verse 1? Or more poignantly, what is the if-then paradigm in Christ himself? Mm. Mm. If he is the very incarnation of the beginning and the end, then every if-beginning is then ended in his story. My conditionality is accomplished in Christ. The if-then paradigm is resolved, answered, fulfilled, completed, accomplished in Christ. Beginning and end are united. They are one in him. They are inseparably united because he says that he is the beginning and the end. That includes if-then conditional clauses. Or did you think? That anything that he requires of you is not found completed in him. Huh? Huh? Did you think that something he expects of you he does not sufficiently provide in himself? Did you think you could divorce yourself from that for some reason, whatever, and think that perhaps you could merit it? You're dead. You have a hard heart of unbelief. You have a heart of stone and not a heart of flesh. You got to be made alive before you're ever going to respond. You're just like Lazarus in the tomb. The conditions are not going to not going to impact you. They're not going to impress you. You're not even going to hear them. You're dead to them. Is as Israel in Egypt was dead to them. Follow that. Somebody has to come who has the all-sufficient ability to join the if-then in resolution. And so if-then becomes since. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you shall be saved since Jesus came into my heart. Since Jesus Changed death to life. So, he undertakes the if as the one who accomplishes the then. He undertakes the if condition as the one who performs the then result. Christ undertakes the condition and performs the condition. Because he does this, those in him accomplish it, do it in him. Christ is the redemptive historical if-then performer. Every condition of God's demand, every if God demands, he is able to then perform. Everyone. Christ is the eschatological condition assumer. He is the eschatological condition performer. Christ, God who demands the condition, grants the performance of the condition, and he does so in Christ. Redemptive historical beginning and end of divine condition is in the one who is the beginning and end of all things. What has begun in him is ended and completed in him, redemptive historically. so too, he performs the beginning and end of all in them conditions, in them conditions in those who belong to him. As he performed them in redemptive history himself, so all united to him have performed them and Christo, in Christ Jesus. Since we are united to him, the if will result in the then. Were we not united to him, the if would not result in the end. Since we are not so united, the if condition will not then result. But in him, it will result. And every beginning, if condition, will be completed in the end blessing. It will for all those in Christ Jesus. All right, so as you look at every construction of this conditional paradigm, exegetical, summary, biblical, theological. The thesis that we considered at the beginning has been shown to be biblically unorthodox. Ought does not imply can, if does not imply then, especially to sinners in a state of nature that is unregenerate, heart of heart, evil heart of unbelief, refusing God's rest. The exegesis of Psalm 95 underscores this. Only divine grace working the end from the beginning. A regenerate new heart of flesh believing on Christ and longing for his eternal rest unites the if-then in the sense of saving grace, transforming that life. That pilgrim beginning continues to the end in union with the if-then accomplishment incarnate in the sense Christ joined me in sweet union unto himself." Christ's accomplishment of every if-then paradigmatic obligation is all out of grace to us, never out of our merit to him. There is no merit in this if-and-if-then conditionality, none whatsoever. To suggest so is to impugn the grace of God. To suggest that there is any meritorious possibility, potentiality at any point in an if-then conditional sequence is to reject Psalm 95. It's to reject Christ as the only if-then performer. It is to reject the grace of God, who in demanding the condition of sinners, graciously provides the condition of that he then demands. Because, as Augustine said long ago, that is what God's grace is, not merit. That is grace. Now, I know that's a fairly long uh, work over and perhaps a little confusing uh, to you, but I hope that as you have the uh, sheets, you can go back and review it and think it over Uh, This is, in fact, a very simple but a very profound aspect of the human condition. The human condition in response to obligation and conditionality and the demand of obedience. And the the resolution of it is all of grace. It is none of merit, never of merit, else grace is no more grace. Any questions or comments that you may have? David?
2: Oh, will prepare to make a very issue retreat. The Exodus generation followed Moses' command to put blood on the doorposts, And the death angel passed over. The Passover celebration, as far as I can discern, was the preeminent feast of Israel. And if all those 20 and older were unregenerate, Israel spent centuries celebrating the Passover feast for what their ancient forefathers did in unbelief. Um, the Passover of the death angel occurred after they obeyed Moses and put blood on the doorpost um, so I'm not I'm not of a fixed position but I, I don't know that I can accept the uh, process of the tandem. And in my mind it comes down to can someone who has come to faith in Christ wander away and mimic an unbeliever in attitude and in unbelief? I would think that is so because there are those at the judgment seat of Christ who are going to have a tremendous forfeiture of rewards. They're saved, but they they did something in their spiritual life disobedience that caused them to lose rewards.
0: Well, you've got two separate issues there uh, as far as talking about somebody backsliding. As a professing Christian, no one would deny that there are professing Christians who can backslide. No one would deny that there are uh, true born-again Christians that can backslide. David would be a testimony in, in case, in point of that. But <clears throat> uh, can they backslide to the point of losing their grace? No, they can't because the one who has begun will complete it. That which has been sufficiently provided by almighty grace, will not be removed. God is not an Indian giver. He will not take away that which he has graciously provided. The coexistence of a great deal of unworthiness in professing Christians is coexistent with redeeming grace and regenerating uh, a regenerating heart. The indwelling sin does not disappear. Now, to address your first question about the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost is simply an external indication of physical deliverance. It's not a testimony to internal belief. The same thing with the Lord's Supper. Just because you have access to the Lord's Supper does not mean that you have internal faith. It simply means that you pass through the external uh, requirements to have admission to that table. Any other questions or observations, Cheryl? My question
1: is... You don't have to be to hate
0: retreat, David, but there's one. Go ahead, Cheryl. <laughs>
1: That's fine. Um, so, if they weren't, they had their faith before they left Egypt was in, in miracles, is what you're saying. Do I understand that? That's correct. So if they only had faith in miracles, why did they go with Moses?
0: they want out of bondage. They don't want to be slaves. They want to die in the slave pits of Egypt. It's a lot better to be free, okay, right? And there are lots of people that like freedom who don't have any truck for Christianity at all, right? So the issue here is escape, even as there are people that will believe on Jesus in a way because they don't want to go to hell, but they're not believing in Jesus because he's, as I say, the glorious son of God. They don't love him for himself. They love him for what they get out of him. They use him. So Israel and Egypt is using Moses. It's using the miracles to get out, get out of an uncomfortable situation. But it doesn't give any testimony to what is inside them. And in fact, what happens to them in the wilderness from age 20 on up is that they show that that was all that they were doing. They just wanted an escape hatch to get out of misery. Because they died with an evil heart of unbelief in the wilderness and God said, you are not coming into my rest. Understand that when God says you will not enter my rest, that means you're not going to heaven. Because of an evil heart of unbelief. But they still,
1: I mean, did they not
0: know that, that they're, okay, so they
1: were brought out of bondage. But once they had crossed over, did they think it was going to be, it was all going to be sweetness and light?
0: They thought it was going to be better than what they had. So they were, they were making the journey on the basis of their physical or visible hope that the wilderness would be better than the slave hovels of Egypt. That's true of all slaves, isn't it? You set them free and they think anything's better than what they had. So it's the same thing with Israel and Egypt. Anything's better than what we have. Let's get out of here. But now, do they believe that what God has brought them out for is to bring them into his rest? Psalm 95 says, no, they did not. Because when Joshua and Caleb came back with a favorable report and the other 10 spies said, no, we can't take that land. When, 10 of them, when 12 of them had seen it and 10 of them said, we've seen it and we don't believe God can give it to us, then Israel as a group, 20 and above, believed that testimony because they had an evil heart of unbelief from the beginning. So they end with the evil heart of unbelief by dying in the wilderness because they began with the evil heart of unbelief. What their hearts did believe was, oh boy, this is great, now we can get out of here. But no, not that I love God. Even at the ten, even at Mount Sinai, before we get to Numbers 14, where the spies go into the land, they've already made the golden calf. So there are other indications of this evil heart of unbelief that are in the narrative prior to Psalm 95's reflection on Numbers 14. Membership in external Israel is no membership in Israel. Invisible, internal Israel. That's the point. Paul, Romans 9, 6. All of Israel is not of Israel. All Israel is not of Israel. All the Israel according to the flesh is not of the Israel according to the remnant of grace. Stephen? Do you think there's a relationship between uh, what the psalmist... Uh, seems to, to indicate uh, is is uh, uh, the boy, vo- or I guess it seems to me that the, that the psalmist is indicating uh, that, that there's a call to worship. Uh, Come, let us worship and bow down. Don't reject that call today. if you hear his voice, don't don't reject him as as our forefathers rejected. And there's a relationship between. That call in the psalm and what the the writer of Hebrews is is, uh, remotely, but it's not what he's focusing on. The exegetical heart of Hebrews 3 is the second part of the psalm, where the psalm shifts from that invitation to come and worship to the reminder of what happened to the wilderness generation. With this community that the writer of Hebrews is directing his remarks to, he sees the same kind of thing on the horizon, because in chapter 2 he's already indicated they're in danger of drifting away. So we get back to this conditionality. If they're in danger of drifting away, then are they going to drift away? And of course, this is going to hit us in the face when we get to chapter 6, which we're not going to get to this year, so you'll have to come back next year. But in chapter 6 you have that very difficult section in the first six verses of 6, which it talks about them tasting the heavenly gift and receiving the good spirit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What are we going to do with that language? And yet, if they sin, there is no repentance in that sixth chapter. What are we going to do with that? Well, this paradigm solves your problem with that because all of that chapter 6, 1 to 4 experience is external. It's not internal. That's not regenerative experience in 6, 1 to 4. It's all External is the external Israel. So this paradigm becomes the background for the next four chapters of the book. Outward, inward, external, internal, visible, invisible. Keep it in your mind. Okay, same time, same station next week. But the week after that, Turkey Day, you all stay home, you hear?